You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 322 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a great conversation, wonderful really, with Stephen Shanigan, restaurateur, community lover and activist, co-owner and operator of Pangea in Manhattan's East Village. And we talk about arts and restaurants, Pride Week, the 50th Stonewall Anniversary Cabaret, NYU's effect on the village, gentrification, Jane Jacobs, a lot of great stuff, bohemian culture. I think you'll enjoy it. Our conversation this week with Stephen Shanigan. We have an EW essay titled Home, and we have a special treat. Dr. Pavis found this, our associate producer. Tennessee Williams reading Eternity by Hart Crane. We have a poem called Artists, and of course, as is always the case, all of this will be imbued infused with the energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 322 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. If I could be anything in the world that flew I would be a bat and come swooping after you And if the last time you were here Things were a bit askew Well, you know what happens after dark When rattlesnakes lose their skins and their hearts And all the missionaries lose their bark Oh, all the trees are calling after you And all the venom snipers after you Are all the mountains bolder after you If I could be any one of the things in this world that bite Instead of a dentured ocelot on a leash I'd rather be a kite and be tied to the end of your string And flying in the air, babe, at night Cause you know what they say about honey bears When you shave off all their baby hair You have a hairy-minded pink bear bear And all the bells are rolling out for you Bloodsuckers are flying after you Yesterday Daisy, May and Biff Were grooving on the street And just like in a movie Her hands became her feet Her belly button was her mouth Which meant she tasted what she'd speak Woo! But the funny thing is What happened to her nose? Ooh, it grew until 
Cupid reached all of her toes Ooh, now when people say her feet smell, they mean her nose And curtains laced with diamonds dear for you Home. I am a silly idealist hoping for justice, empathy, logic, and reason. We were raised on these a long time ago. I am uncertain what we are raised on anymore. There is certainly gluttony, avarice, and conditional hope, swinging postulates of cynical tropes, leading us all to react and manage in desperation as we try to cope, ill-suited for the analysis and immature in emotion because of all the smoke and mirrors arranged by those ill-suited to teach and lead. We bleed figurative and literally in the U.S. and across the globe because of man-made treasure troves that we feel compelled to pursue to have and to own, whilst simultaneously we sell our minds and forsake our souls. It has become quite sophisticated in this Western world. The Wild West is at your behest. You can be big and powerful and live eternally. And the grass is always greener, except in the desert. Though there, you are confident you will find an oasis and I wonder where you were when we were getting high. For as this is going, everyone must get stoned. As Wycliffe plays a rhapsody on his slide trombone, calling us all back home. Down. 
Stephen Shanigan, is that yes. you? Yes, this is me. Hi, this is E.W. Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thanks for being on the program. You're welcome. Nice to meet you, E.W. Same here. I've uh, been very much uh, involved in where you're coming from, what you're about over these last couple of days, trying to do some research, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk with you. For those who... Uh, don't know Stephen. Uh, I know several things, and I'm sure we're going to learn more. He's a restaurateur. He's a community lover, for sure. Co-owner and operator of Pangea in Manhattan's East Village. And uh, today he's taking some time out. I, probably, are you at the, at the restaurant? 
Yes, I am. Trying not to get interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. It's Friday as we speak, so I'm sure you're right. getting ready for a big crowd. Um, uh, again, thank you for being on the show. And let's get right into it. Uh, if you would, Stephen, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, well, I moved to New York when I was 18 and attended NYU. And I ended up studying psychology, but uh, I had to work in order to pay my way. Um, I didn't really have a setup where things were paid for. I had, you know, grants and loans, and et cetera, but I did have to work. And that's how I ended up in restaurants. Um, I had never previously worked in a restaurant, so I kind of, you know, faked my way through. And as I was going through NYU, I worked continuously, starting out as a busboy and then as a waiter. So that's how I was able to uh, attend. I don't even think that's possible anymore these days with the what they're uh, charging for tuition, but yeah. back then it was actually doable back then. Was this back in the 80s? Um, I moved here in 1976. 76. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I recall reading that uh, you you went off for a while to uh, to Europe. I don't know if that was after you graduated from NYU. And it was. I graduated in 1980, and in 1981, I took my first trip to Europe. It seemed to be what everyone was doing in the restaurant industry in those days, you know, because uh, it was mostly cash tips at the time, and it wasn't the system that it exists now. And um, people would save up and do that kind of bohemian backpacking thing. Mine wasn't quite a backpacking experience, but I did visit um, a fair number of countries, and it was kind of my coming-of-age journey, and I'm glad I did it. You know, but I continued going back, especially to um, Italy, um, which is where I ended up moving to in 1983 for about six months. And then when I came back to New York in the beginning of 84, um, I decided I wanted to open up a simple, you know, cafe, so to speak, in the East Village. And that's how it all started. And it just so happened one of the uh, chefs that I had worked with lived on uh, 6th Street between 1st and A, and he was ready to leave the job where he was chefing to come and, you know, help me open up this little railroad-sized storefront on 7th Street between 1st and A. And that's how it all started. I didn't really have any experience managing a restaurant. I had waiting experience, et cetera, but never managing. So it was kind of a very steep learning curve in dealing with the city, too, at the, even at that point. And, and that wasn't Pangea, that first uh, endeavor? The, the first um, restaurant was called Spaghetteria. Um, uh, short, it, most people ended up not being able to pronounce it. It was uh, an sort of a generic name that existed in restaurants in Italy where they would just serve simple, straightforward spaghetti. So at that time, the East Village was quite inexpensive. So the best advice that was given to me by my friend Michael, who was the chef at the time, was keep it affordable. You know, and I said, well, what do you consider affordable? And we had pastas ranging from 4 to $10 at that time, 4 to $8, actually. And, um, you know, they were pretty straightforward and we had a very simple main course menu with like three or four choices, and it sat about 32 people, and it had a little garden in the back. That's how we started out. And we were quite fortunate because two weeks after opening, um, a gentleman came in in the afternoon, and we weren't officially open for service at that point, and uh, 
he asked if he could sit down and have something to eat. He wanted to talk to me. So I said, sure. He sat down and I served him a mozzarella and tomatoes and he had a glass of wine. And it turned out he was a writer for the New York Times. Nice. He didn't do a food review, per se. He did a, a column that existed at the time called Notes on Fashion. And that was every Wednesday. And it was basically about all the top designers and what was happening in, in the fashion world. But sandwiched in between all these paragraphs about famous designers was a little paragraph that said, Spaghettoria is the hottest new restaurant in downtown. And uh, that put us on the map within two weeks. So we weren't even really ready for it in that sense because we were still kind of learning what to do. But uh, that put the name Spaghettoria on the map. And from 84 to uh, 86, I still kept that initial location, and then I moved to my current location on 2nd Avenue between 11th and 12th. So I had two going. Eventually, I closed the original one and because uh, most of the people were coming to the 2nd Avenue location. And then uh, we kept it under the name Spaghettoria for about a decade. I think it was from 1996 I changed it to uh, Pangea. There were a number of reasons for that. I, a lot of people were on that Atkins-free diet and not eating pasta, mm-hmm. like a period where pasta was almost like taboo, and uh, so we started serving a more Mediterranean, broader-based menu. And Pangea, of course, of course meant uh, all Earth, so it was kind of an all-encompassing. Even though it focused on the Mediterranean, we had Moroccan dishes, French dishes, Italian dishes. Yeah, Pangea. I th- isn't that when everything was connected? The, you know, the, the, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of chose it metaphorically too, because. You know, it seemed like the world was getting smaller, and, and especially with food, there were crossovers and, you know, cultural crossovers in terms of what people would be eating, you know, on a regular basis. It wasn't just, you know, back in the 70s and early 80s, you know, the idea of what a, you know, restaurant was is completely different than it is now, as you can see. But I think um, people were more, uh, had become more daring, and they were ready to try different types of food starting in the mid-80s. And, and it seems to me, though food is, of course, very important, uh, it's also about community uh, it is. for you. It is. Well, when we first opened uh, at the Second Avenue location, my current location, um, my business partner uh, was an art history major, and we had decided to immediately incorporate local artist work. We had actually did that at the first location as well. We had friends who were painters, so we would put up rotating art exhibits, but then when we moved into the bigger space where we are now, I broadened that and I started working with local theaters, dance companies, uh, we used to work very closely and still do with Dance Space Project, the Poetry Project, all at St. Mark's Church, and we also started partnering with Classic Stage Company and various other theaters that some are not with us anymore, but we would do opening night events for them, provide them free complimentary wine, and it was basically a community gathering place. We were known as a second home to neighborhood artists. That uh, actually was a quote from one of the reviews we got in the beginning. Was I think it was in uh, Fodor's travel magazine. Uh, they labeled us as a second home to neighborhood artists. Oh, what a compliment that is. You know, For me, yeah. having artists come around to your establishment and hang out, is uh, is a wonderful thing, you know. The 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 personality it gives to your establishment must be incredible. It is, and we still maintain that. And it's harder and harder 
every year, you know, as you can imagine with the rents going up. Um, but we do cater to artists, and we still, you know, we still do events for them. Uh, there's so much that we do, and it was only a natural evolution in the last five years that we started doing live performance in our back uh, space that we were uh, using as a private event space. But I had so many musician friends, and they were saying, this room is, is perfect. It's like a, a downtown Carlisle, you know. And I was like, you're, you know, I would laugh, and I would say, oh, you're just music. Of course, you're going to see it that way. But um, So we took the plunge and did it in uh, 2014. And now we've uh, sort of included, um, you know, singer-songwriters and all sorts of musicians, spoken word, uh, performance artists. I know uh, our our uh, associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, uh, I believe that he met you at, at Pangea, and he uh, also uh, has crossed paths and spent time with the great uh, Austin Pendleton there. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you've had a lot of uh, interesting, very uh, accomplished artists that come through. I remember even uh, a story about a painter that would uh, come by to, to, to eat, and uh, he offered you... Uh, a work in exchange, and, and you guys yeah. said no? Yeah. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, that happened uh, when we first opened here in 86, and a lot of the major artists were living in the East Village at the time, and um, I had, uh, he was living across the street in the East Village Cinema Building, which is a landmark. It used to be a Yiddish theater in the 1920s, and when we one of the reasons that we took over this space was because it was a live theater, and we thought, what, how great, you know, we would have shows going on across the street. So there was a show that they were putting in there, and it went through previews for like two months. I think it was called The Chosen, and it closed after opening night. And then the theater sat vacant for years until they converted it to a movie theater. So, <laughs> you know, our hopes of like having this live performance space across the street, yeah. you know, would help to, you know, pay the rent, which was pretty high at that time when we moved in, so compared to other places. So there was already that on the horizon that things were going to change, you know. But um, one of the uh, people that lived in the building uh, was a painter, and he came in, and uh, this was the beginning of the AIDS crisis as well. I had so many friends that were falling sick at that time in 86, 87, 88. Um, uh, but this particular artist, his name was David. Now, I know, don't know if I could pronounce his name properly, Wojnarowicz. I know who you're talking Yeah, I know who you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So he, he came in uh, at lunchtime, open at lunch, and he said, uh, you know, I don't really have any money. Uh, is it okay if I exchange, you know, I'll give you a painting, whatever? And I said, oh, don't worry about it. You're more than welcome to come in anytime you want. So he used to have his favorite spaghetti bolognese and, you know, sit there and kind of do sketches, and then that was it. And we were always very generous. I mean, the whole idea was that we were a community restaurant, and that's how it started and maintains today. Well, and let's get to, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the AIDS crisis uh, back in the 80s, and um, I know to this day you guys are involved with uh, Pride and uh, Pride Week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You want to talk a bit about that and, and the Stonewall anniversary? Well, 
uh, the programming that I I started doing the bookings in 2015, and the pro- programming that I do for the space in the back, as I mentioned, is, is quite diverse. Um, it's not just jazz; it's performance art, spoken word, uh, original singer-songwriters, and so I thought with the importance of uh, Stonewall 50th uh, anniversary coming up, that it would be a good idea to do an actual festival. I haven't really done one previously, and so I just started putting the word out, and so many artists that have, that are regular artists that have performed here on numerous times uh, were on board. So I just started booking everything from, you know, uh, downtown icons to comedy to spoken word and all original singer-songwriters, drag queens, everything. I think it's really going to be quite special, actually. When is uh, when is that to happen? It starts on June 10th and goes through uh, Gay Pride Sunday, which is June 30th. Right now, not every single night is is booked, but about 75 percent of it is booked. So. And you know your experience uh, as a citizen in in uh, New York City as well as in the United States and you know internationally, I suppose too. What what is your take today uh, with regard to um, people's sentiment uh, and acceptance of the LB, LGBTQ and otherwise communities? Well, living here in New York and especially in the East Village, I mean, it, I think everyone in New York is pretty accepting of it. I would, I would assume that most are, especially down in this area. But um, I know that's not the case throughout the country, and um, there is still need to express ourselves and, you know, people to unite and show that, you know, there is tolerance and the need for inclusion. And especially in the current political climate, you know, things are going in reverse. There's a lot of concern about that. And I think that's why this year is going to be such a huge event. I believe it's the largest event that the city, the tourist board of New York City has ever taken on. They're celebrating the whole month as well. So I think it's very important that New York City is the world pride capital this year. Yeah, um, yeah, I, mean, I, I agree. I just, you know, I question how much of it is, is politically motivated in that sense to bring in money because there's so many changes going on in the city right now, and it seems to have lost its soul. You know, I, one could look at uh, Times Square and, you know, say, oh, well, look at, how it's become disnified and but it's happening in every neighborhood and it turns out that small independently owned businesses can't survive because the rents had skyrocketed so much that you know the, the math doesn't work anymore especially for restaurants you know it's always known that restaurants have a very small profit margin so are you saying that you're wondering if uh, city government uh, embracing pride um, as as an, an event to showcase the city is more about economics than it is about uh, morality and ethics and I justice. Question, you know, I'm not saying that is the case. I question it, but um, just looking at all the other directions that the city seems to be going in, with favors to developers and all sorts of movement like that and making the city less livable for the rest of the people, at least for, you know, working class people. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that that is the case, but I do, that is in the back of my mind, like what was the motivation? Is it 
truly the uh, a celebration? Yes, it is a celebration. But is it more about getting the tourist dollars in? You know, I, I, I question it. Yeah. Me too. I mean, not that in particular, but generally it seems all too often uh, our religion is economics, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, there is a soullessness to that, for sure, as you put it, to, as you alluded to. Um, but it seems that's what resonates with people. You know, I, 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 I'm a heterosexual male, and I am extremely discouraged and depressed when I see any of my fellow human beings being treated uh, with disrespect, and at the least, or with hate, you know, at the extreme. For someone who is in a in a segment of society who is directly experiencing it, my gosh, the the uh, disheartened uh, sort of response you must feel is beyond me. Yes, um, like I said, I feel at times like living in the East Village, we're somewhat protected from it because everyone is pretty open-minded in New York. Even New York as a whole, I mean, how the rest of the country sometimes looks at it. Everyone wants to come here to visit, but they always say, oh, they wouldn't want to live here, you know. But, but even now, I mean, even the people that have been here for decades, you know, see the changes, and they're happening so quickly, and we're losing so many aspects of the city that gave it its soul. You know? Well, you and I talked uh, via email a bit about Jane Jacobs, you know, and, uh, yes. you know, the, the village where you are, uh, she fought Moses with uh, a bunch of folks from the grassroots level uh, so that the village wouldn't be demolished for an expressway, right? Uh, right. Basically. And, and what, do you, what do you think she would be on, on the transformation of the village right now? NYU in particular. I know you graduated from NYU, right. a great institution in many regards, but they're putting up dorms and, and such around. Is that, I mean, does that concern you? What do you think Jane would say, too? Um, well, I can only imagine what she would have said or tried to stop. I mean, um, for me, it is a big concern because I've seen it for the last 20 years since they put up dormitories on 3rd Avenue, which was like a big change because there never had been any high-rise buildings over there. Everything was still pretty much low, unlike it is in Midtown. Um, But they started by putting up, I think, two or three dormitories on 3rd Avenue, And we noticed the neighborhood changing in a transient kind of way. We had so many regular customers, you know, over the last 20 years that slowly exited the city. Some, you know, were bought out of their apartments because landlords wanted to develop. Others uh, tried to hang on as long as they could and then decided it was too difficult and moved to places where it was less expensive. And New York was already beginning, and I think NYU had a big part of that, that making it a more transient neighborhood, and it's even more noticeable today. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Yeah. You don't really rely on, you know, even people that become new regulars for your restaurant, suddenly they're gone in a couple of years because people move for jobs more frequently. So even the people that are here for work, you know, as we all know, there's no guarantee with any job these days. So this is constant flux of people. So the neighborhood is never the same every two years. You know? Right, and you, and you need that consistency to create a community. You do. Yeah. 
You know, and then we, we talk about Jane Jacobs. A lot of folks might not know who she is. I mean, she's a hero to many people. Uh, she is to me, for sure. She had a couple of her books, uh, The uh, City, Cities and Wealth of Nations and The Death and Life of Great American Cities. You know, they're like, and there are a couple of others as well. But they're, 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 they're uh, sacred texts to folks who value community. And, and it is about neighborhoods. It is about bodegas and independently owned restaurants and bookstores and cafes and people living, everyday people living a lifetime there. Right. And I'm, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Jeremiah Moss's Vanishing New York. It's a blog that I read on, and I know that he made reference to a more recent building that went up on 14th Street, a Target store. And I think he said, "What would uh, I'm sure Jane would be rolling in her grave today. <laughs> and, and it's true. I mean, I haven't even gone over there for that reason. I mean, I've been to Target stores in Florida or wherever, and there, it seems appropriate there, but not on 14th Street in Manhattan. No, no. Refused to go over. Yeah, I hear you. You know, it's it's kind of neat for me, at least. I teach at a, a small little college in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, and, and uh, it used to be a high school, and that's where Jane Jacobs went to high school. So it's kind of oh. neat. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. it's pre- pretty cool. I often think she walked the halls here that I'm walking through now and stuff. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we're, fo- we're talking, folks, to Stephen Shanigan of um, Pangea Restaurant, and uh, he's the co-owner and operator, and uh, he also is a, a community lover, and... I, I know you love the arts. We talked about that. A, a cabaret. Do you, what, tell us a little bit about your 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 love of cabaret. Um, I sort of just fell into, you know, the booking aspect of it. I mean, I've always been around friends who were actors, singers, um, in that sense, musician friends. Um, we have the advantage of having this sort of a jewel box of a room. It's a good listening room. You don't even really need acoustics, although we do have, you know, amplification for for, vo- for voice and instruments and stuff. It's almost not necessary, though. We've had some opera singers go in there and do it with without amplification, of course. And uh, it's a, a square-sized space, and it immediately when the artists walk in, they go, wow, this, this feels incredible, because you can do a performance, you can try out new material. It's become like an incubator room for many artists because many of these artists that we have here are very successful. I mean, they perform in much larger venues, some internationally. And when they walk in this room, they realize it kind of embraces them and they're like, I could try something new here and know that it would be fine. And it's true, it's become an incubator. Many artists have come to develop new shows here and try them out before taking them to their larger venues. You know? So it's kind of an ideal situation. And again, that ties into community because you know you're able to experiment. You're able to uh, you know have a safe place to try something on a smaller audience. Yes, and and uh, you know through the the uh, expression uh, in the art form is is humanity. You know the eternal questions, the desire to understand and to connect. That too must create an un, a wonderful energy. Uh, it is, yeah. yeah because I, I must admit that you know running a restaurant is very daunting at times, and it does wear you down. And since I started working with musicians and artists and performance artists, it makes my job pleasurable. 
you know, it actually gives me fuel to keep, you know, fighting for various causes in the neighborhood. So, you know, we do our best, and uh, to me, it's 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 just a, a a very fresh feeling every day that I have a show. I'm I'm so impressed with the talent that exists. I mean, I always everyone always knows that New York has the best talent, but it really is true. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this brings maintain uh, like a bohemianness too. I mean, the the restaurant itself is very important. It's it's not like sterile and corporate like a lot of the new designs which seem to be everywhere now. Like you walk in here and you can sense not only the history but you sense the artistry. You know, this uh, local artists have their work, or, you know, on the ceiling. We have a ceiling installation uh, by uh, William Engels, who is a local artist, lives around the corner. We have a front room mural by another artist, Jody Morlock. And then in the back, where the performance space is, um, we have uh, paintings as well. And uh, Leon Waller has done these beautiful paintings that have completely transformed the room. I mean, we had no intention of putting art up at first. We were going to just put photographs of the performers, sort of like a Sardis type mm -hmm. setup. But then uh, Leon approached us and he put these sort of gouache type paintings in the back, drawings, and um, they give the room a 1940s, 50s feel. So when the New York Times started reviewing a lot of our shows, um, uh, they referred to it as a bohemian oasis, mm. um, sort of not unlike uh, Can Max's Kansas City of its day. Mm. And I never went to Max's Kansas City, but I, you know, it's, it's historic, and that's where everyone used to hang out, all the singers and writers and actors. So that was a, a big compliment to me in a short amount of time to create that atmosphere oh gosh yeah and what about some of the performers that have uh strolled in to the space oh wow uh that's quite a big list um one of my favorite is tammy Faye starlight she's a performance artist she does um her shows are basically based on uh singers from the 60s and 70s she has done like a marianne faithful show she also um Recently, this past spring, did a 40th anniversary celebration of Marianne Faithfull's Broken English, mm -hmm. um, where she does the entire album. But the genius behind Tammy Faye Starlight is that she is so politically savvy. She is so smart. She will weave in the current day politics into her patter that is in between the songs. I mean, like no one I have ever heard before. Nice. Like She's up on all the politics, whatever happened that day with... We won't name names, but she will weave it into her show. And I'm like, after the show, going, how did you, that, that just came out today. How, how did you do that? Yeah. yeah, I love that. You know, most people have a show and it's rehearsed and they know, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But this room lends itself to that more fluid approach and people can take chances and they don't have to worry about following the script if there is one. They can break away from it. Oh wow! Yeah, very bohemian, and what what a nice place for for an artist to have to go. Uh, yeah. It it sounds a bit like a, a performer that I've seen a few times named Nellie Mackay. I don't know if you ever came across Nellie. Yeah, Nellie has performed here as well. Yeah, yeah. She, um, was a guest of one of our artists that was performing there. So. I got to get out there, Stephen. I got to get out there. Let me know. Let me know. I'd love to. Even like you can take a look at the calendar. You'll see the diversity 
of the shows and the bookings. So there's everything from traditional cabaret American songbook to jazz to spoken word and uh, original singer-songwriters, all of the things I mentioned, but it's uh, quite diverse and it's interesting. And if people want to check out uh, your your webpage and see what's coming up with Pride mm -hmm. Celebration and, and all the cabaret uh, offerings you just mentioned, what what would that uh, address be? Um, you go to www.pangeanyc.com. That's uh, P-A-N-G-E-A-N-Y-C.com. And just click on the Events tab at the top, and it'll pull up the calendar. And you can advance to whatever month. So we tend to book continually, but there are some bookings out, you know, to three or four months from now. Uh, I try not to get too far ahead of that, although people do approach me for like 2020, and I'm like, I can't, I can't think of that yet. <laughs> you know, because we are still a restaurant as well. I mean, in the front room, it's it's a great place to hang. You know, artists are not. It doesn't really. It's, it's, what makes it different, I think, is just that it's relaxed and you can hear your, you know, your friends. You can have a conversation still here. Even though there's background music playing in the front room, it's one of the few places in the city where you can still hear your guests. And that's a common complaint, not only in New York City, but in most restaurants these days, that you cannot hear your, you know, across the table. I agree. Yeah, it is, it is a pain when that occurs. Now, I, I, we're, we're just about... Out of, out of time for this conversation, but I want to give you, uh, I guess, a last word here in a way. Um, you're, you know, there, there are a lot of people listening, and you, with your experience, uh, and as a citizen, as a human being, any any words of, of I guess, insight, wisdom, hope you'd like to share? Um, in general? Yeah, in general. Uh, I'm always a believer to just keep the faith and keep... Um, you know, moving forward, I, you know, even though I'm a little bit on in my years, I'm not quite at retirement age. I'm getting close to it, but I cannot imagine ever retiring in the truest sense. I mean, having been in the restaurant business and now dealing with artists, that's what keeps me alive. And in New York, everyone walks everywhere, so I'm always mobile. I'm always moving around, and I never want to give that up. And I always, that helps me keep faith that things will turn and better things will come. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Stephen Shanigan, for taking Thank time you. out. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll cross paths soon at your restaurant. Let me know when you're coming to town, and I will, uh, you know, whatever show you want to see, or just come in for a bite and have a chat, I'd love to meet you. Oh, great. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. Have a good day. Thank you. before 
it was over, though still gusting balefully, the old woman and I foraged some drier clothes and left the house or what was left of it. Parts of the roof reached the Yucatan, I suppose. She almost, even then, got blown across lots at the base of the mountain. But the town, the town, wires in the streets and Chinamen up and down with with arms and slings, plaster-strewn dents with tiles, and Cuban doctors, troopers, trucks, loose hands, the only building not sagging on its knees, Fernandez Hotel, was requisitioned into pens for cutted negroes, bandaged to be taken to Havana on the first boat through, they groaned. But was there a boat? By the wharf's old site you saw two decks unsandwiched, split sixty feet apart, and a funnel high and dry up near the park, where a frantic peacock rummaged amid heaped cans. <laughs> no one seemed to be able to get a spark from the world outside. But some rumor blew that Havana, not to mention poor Batabano, was halfway under water with fires for some hours since. All wireless down, of course, there, too. Back at the erstwhile house, we shoveled and sweated, watched the ogre's sun blister the mountain, stripped now bare of palm, everything, and licked the grass as black as patent leather, which the rhymed white wind had glazed, everything gone or strewn in riddled grace. Long tropic roots high in the air, like lace, 
and somebody's mule steamed, swaying right by the pump. <laughs> Good God! As though his sinking carcass there were death predestined. You held your nose already along the roads, begging for buzzards' vultures. The mule stumbled, staggered. I somehow couldn't budge to lift a stick for pity of his stupor. I remember still that strange gratuity of horses, one ours, and one a stranger creeping up with dawn out of the bamboo brake, through howling sheeted light when the storm was dying. And Sarah saw them too, sobbed. Yes, now, <laughs> it's almost over, for they know the weather's in their noses. There's dawn. <laughs> But that one white, I can't account for him. And true, he stood like a vast phantom, maned by all that memoried night of screaming rain. Eternity. Yet, water, water. I beat the day's mule toward the road. He got that far and fell dead or dying. But it didn't so much matter. The morrow's dawn was dense with carrion hazes sliding everywhere. Bodies were rushed into graves without ceremony, while hammers pattered in town. The roads were being cleared, injured, brought in, and treated, it seemed. In due time, the president sent down a battleship that baked something like two thousand loaves on the way. Doctors shot ahead from the deck in planes. The fever was checked. I stood a long time in Max talking New York with the gods, Guantanamo, Norfolk, drinking Bacardi, and talking USA. Dear Mr. Gable, I am writing this to you, and I hope that you will read it so you'll know. Heart beats like a hammer, and I stutter and I stammer every time I see you at the picture show. I guess I'm just another fan of yours, and I thought I'd write and tell you so. I didn't want to do it, I didn't want to do it. You made me love you, and all the time you knew it. I guess you always knew it. You made me happy sometimes. You made me glad. But there were times. I didn't want to tell you. I think you're grand. That's true. Yes, I do. Indeed, I do. You know I do. I must tell you what I'm feeling. The very mention of your name sends my heart reeling. 
Mr. Gable. I don't want to bother you. I guess you've got a lot of girls to tell you the same thing. And if you don't want to read this, well, you don't have to. But I just had to tell you about the time I saw you and it happened one night. That was the first time I ever saw you. And I knew right then you were the nicest fellow in the movies. I guess it was because you acted so... was so natural-like. Not like a real actor at all, but just like any fellow you'd meet at school or at a party. And then one time I saw you in a picture with Joan Crawford. And I had to cry a little. Because you loved her so much. And you couldn't have her. Not till the end of the picture, anyway. And then one time I saw you in person. You were making a personal appearance at the theater, and I was standing there when you got out of your car, and you almost knocked me down. Oh, but it wasn't your fault. No, I was in the way. But you looked at me, and you smiled. Yeah, you smiled right at me as if you meant it. And I cried all the way home just because you smiled at me for being in your way. Oh, I'll never forget it, Mr. Gable. Honest Injun, you're my favorite actor. I don't care what happens, let the whole world stop. As far as I'm concerned, you'll always be the top. Cause you know you made me love you. Artists. Missed opportunities and sweltering heat together deplete the savvy we once were and leave us instead in the lurch dependent on a corrupt government and the depraved church. At least we still have the artists. Forever yours. Poetic, I'm so pathetic that I always have found it best Instead of getting them off of my chest To let them rest unexpressed I hate parading my serenading as I probably miss a ball But if this ditty is not so pretty At least it'll tell you how great you are You're the top You're the Colosseum You're the top you're the Louvre Museum You're a melody from a symphony by Strauss You're a Vendel bonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet You're Mickey Mouse You're the Nile You're the Tower of Pisa You're the smile on the Mona Lisa I'm a worthless check, a total wreck, a flop But if, baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top You're the top You're Mahatma Gandhi You're the top You're Napoleon Brandy You're the purple light of a summer night in Spain you're the National Gallery, your garbled salary, your cellophane. You're sublime. You're a turkey dinner. You're the time of the Derby winner. 
I'm a toy balloon that's fated soon to pop. But if, baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. Episode 322 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those wonderful folks who made this possible. First and foremost, Stephen Shanigan. Also, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis. Tennessee Williams, Hart Crane. And these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli. Lou Reed, Oasis, Marianne Faithful, Judy Garland, Cole Porter, Terrence Blanchard, and Branford Marsalis, too. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one. Take care.